From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, October 30th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The east coast of America picks up the pieces after Sandy. This limo driver in Brooklyn was stranded in his home without power after severe flooding. My car is in the parking lot next to the house, and I came out in the morning, my car is 180 degrees turning around. It's unbelievable. And later, a Libyan who's moving into Muammar Gaddafi's former military compound. And I thought to myself, one day I'm just going to go in, inside there. And here I am, living, actually not just going in there, living in here. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The day after Hurricane Sandy slammed into the U.S., President Barack Obama is warning that the storm's threat is not yet over. Sandy continues to turn northward toward Canada. It's spilling heavy rain and strong winds throughout a huge area. Earlier, the president signed what's called a major disaster declaration for both New Jersey and New York. Officials in both states made it clear that damage is extensive. More than 30 deaths are being blamed on the storm. Millions of people remain without power today. In New York City, flooding continues to be a problem, especially in the subway system. Mayor Michael Bloomberg told reporters that the system will remain closed for several days. He also said public schools will stay closed tomorrow. And then the mayor said this. Uh, We'll take a few questions, but before, let me just try to summarize for our Spanish-speaking New Yorkers. Uh, El Huracán Sandy le ha pagado fuerte a Nueva York. El clima sigue peligroso. Seguimos bajo un avicio de inundación costal hasta las tres... Mayor Bloomberg often translates his statements into Spanish in a nod to his city's diverse population. New Yorker Constantine Dubiago doesn't speak Spanish. He was born in Ukraine. He works as a limousine driver in Coney Island in Brighton Beach, areas of Brooklyn with a large Russian immigrant community. Dubiago says it's been a hard day. We have no electricity, we have no water. Well, luckily we have a phone service in the apartment and the gas. That's it. No water, no electricity. No, but you have gas, which is pretty important for a limousine driver. Tell me how you got kind of stranded where you are right now on Coney Island. What happened? Stranded is my house. My car is in the parking lot next to the house. And I came out in the morning, my car is 180 degrees turning around. I was a shock. I know it was a lot of water coming, uh, coming uh, to the parking lot. It was like a meter and a half. I don't know how many, like four feet or five feet. Yeah, the car was floated, and the, the flow of the water turned the car around. It was parallel to the next car to me. It's unbelievable. The car was floated like a boat. It's hard to comprehend how your car ended up floating like a boat. What kind of limo is it, anyway? It's a Mercedes-Benz. It's a Mercedes. Ah, so that must be um, particularly distressing since you rely on this Mercedes for your business. The funny stuff is the uh, door is so sealed, that's why it's floated. My car has no moisture inside. No way. It means it's sealed. That's why it's floated. Your car is moisture sealed, so you're saying that there's no water inside. Yeah, I'm so lucky. 
uh, because it's not only one car damaged, it's like thousands of cars around here damaged. Um, so just very briefly, was this, was this the only damage that was done to your uh, property? You kidding me? It's only damage. Uh, unless we have no electricity, my food is going to be <laughs> rotten in, in my house, which is we have uh, no electricity. I don't know what we're going to do. We have a problem. You have a problem. We're stuck here, dear. You want to come over and help us? Welcome, I wish please. I could. Uh, yeah, I wish I could help you. So this whole experience for you, it sounds like, Constantine, it's been pretty frustrating. Uh, no. No. I'm a United States citizen. I can take anything. I guess okay? you can. I'm 33 and years I live here. I'm going to give my life for this country. And this is nothing. Compared to living in the United States, with Soviet Union. <laughs> if situation like that in the Soviet Union, mama mia, I'm telling you. By the way, I know that there's a huge Russian immigrant community where you are right yeah, now. Yeah, Brazil, Bishaya, yeah. For a long Konyal, time. yes. Yeah. People live yeah. since Is 75. A, does an occasion like this bring a lot of people kind of to your rescue? Do a lot of uh, Russians help each other out in a circumstance like this? Or is everybody hit hard enough? That, yeah. Russians? Uh, we have no communication, my friend. We don't have any communication. So somebody call us, this and that, they yeah, probably will come. They're going to bring some vodka and we're going to celebrate. Very simple, you know. Russians never give up. Well, don't give up on that Mercedes. I never give up. Okay. And by the way, just Constantine, what does it look like around you there? Wet, dry, what? No, it's dry, but it's very windy. Rain stops. Very windy, very heavy wind. You know, it blows away. You, you know, if you didn't have a breakfast, you're going to be blown away. Well, we wish you good luck and hope that car gets started again so you can, you can go on with your livelihood. I'm a very positive person. It will start everything and I will forget in a couple of days about this. Constantine, good luck and thank you very much. Thank you. New Yorker Constantine Dubiago was born in Ukraine. He works as a limousine driver in Coney Island and Brighton Beach. The severe flooding caused by Sandy didn't come as a surprise to the city of New York. Officials have for years been looking at ways to protect against storm surges, and they could face even bigger storm surges in the future due to climate change. Coastal cities elsewhere in the world are installing large-scale engineering projects to deal with the threat. New York may want to learn from them, as the world's Ritu Chatterjee reports. Six years ago, New York City officials approached a Dutch scientist for advice. The Netherlands, of course, is a low-lying country that's well known for its heroic efforts at holding back the sea. The Dutch scientist Jeroen Ertz of VU University in Amsterdam says New York officials wanted to know what they could do to make the city more floodproof. But at the time they weren't interested in big engineering solutions. They were a little bit reluctant in terms of, let's say, considering large-scale protection measures like surge barriers. Surge barriers or flood barriers are carefully engineered concrete structures often built in tidal inlets to prevent flooding in coastal areas. These and other large structures like levees are expensive and Ert says New York wanted inexpensive solutions. But that changed last year after Hurricane Irene caused huge economic damage. Then they also saw the sense of urgency to maybe uh, look also at other options. So now, Ertz is collaborating with New York to develop plans for levees and storm surge barriers and on ways to make new and old buildings more floodproof. He says New York could adopt some solutions from his country. 
for example, the network of surge barriers that protect the city of Rotterdam and its port. Or the idea of raising beaches with fresh sand every few years. Each time the sea level rises a little bit, a few inches, we simply put some more sand on our beaches. Ertz's colleague and fellow countryman Pierre Velenga says New York should also consider some tips from Venice. Over the last 20 years, the frequency of flooding of Venice has increased from about four times a year to like 20, 40 times a year. Velinga has been helping Venetians put in a range of measures to help protect themselves from these floods. Some of them are simple, like raised walkways that help pedestrians keep their feet dry. Then there are more complex and expensive engineering solutions like a set of mobile water barriers. It's a set of doors that are hinged to the seafloor and they lift up when the water is very high and then they block the entrance. The entrance from the Adriatic Sea to the city, that is. But whatever action New York takes, experts say the city has to be prepared to redesign its plan depending on what the future brings. Tim Reader is the Regional Climate Change Programme Manager at the Environment Agency in the UK. He's involved in a programme called the Thames Estuary 2100. It's a plan to protect London and surrounding areas from floods and other climate-related risks. Reader says this is a long-term plan that can be tweaked based on the degree to which the climate changes over coming decades. Given the fact that we don't really know how much sea level rise exactly we're going to get as a result of climate change, the plan can be adapted so that we can continue to manage flood risk over the next 100 years in London. He says cities like New York, Rotterdam, Venice and London face an uncertain future and should work together to prepare for a common threat. For the world... I'm Ritu Chatterjee. Earlier this week, my colleague Marco Werman flew to London. He's there to find out how people in Britain and around the globe feel about the U.S. presidential election. But Marco says he's finding that what people there are talking about is sandy. It's still big news here the day after. I mean, very, very big, big enough to momentarily knock the story down of the late and disgraced BBC presenter Jimmy Savile and the charges against him of sex abuse that just keep piling up. Uh, Let me give you a taste of Sky News coverage, one of the broadcasters here in the UK, the day after the storm. At least 16 people are killed as Superstorm Sandy leaves a trail of devastation across the eastern coast of the U.S. President Obama declares a major... I mean, as you can hear there, Lisa, the the sense you get from this dramatic and justifiably dramatic coverage uh, that is wall-to-wall here today is that this is a classic American storm, as in when the states do storms, they do them big. I mean, that's not to say that people are watching this like entertainment, but they're looking at the front pages and the various pictures on TV and sent in through people in the states on social media of explosions in Queens, of the Manhattan subways getting flooded, you know, that dramatic, extraordinary picture picture of water barreling down elevator shafts, and they can't believe it. It's like what a lot of people said right after 9-11. It looked like a blockbuster movie, and it is really frightening. Now, when people approach you, Marco, you being an American, um, I wonder what they have to say to you. Well, the first thing they want to know is how did I get out of the country? And I point out that I was probably on one of the last flights uh, out of Boston and got into London on Sunday morning. A lot of people have asked me how my family is. And I just spoke with my dad on the 23rd floor of his building in Manhattan. Uh, His big concern was uh, that he didn't get his paper this morning. Uh, The other question that I've been asked four times today is, will Sandy 
uh, postpone the election. And to that, I've answered that so far, uh, no general election in the U.S. has ever been postponed uh, and that it's hard to see how this storm would change that. But who knows? I mean, it could make voting really difficult next Tuesday for some people. Interesting, though, that that would be one of the things on people's minds there. We, we know that along with Sandy, folks in the U.K. have been following the U.S. elections very closely as well. Right. Well, that's uh, why I've come to London to talk to people here about how they see the U.S. election outside the bubble. And indeed, this morning I was meeting with uh, six kids from the Northumberland Park Community School here in London. But for the first 10 minutes, we were talking about Sandy. They wanted to know. They've been watching the, the news. And we started talking about storms in the United States. It's like a really weird hurricane because it's like a tropical hurricane mixed in with like Arctic air. And some places in New York, there's like it's completely fine. And some places are just like it's like up to water up to thigh level. Yeah. So we spent about 10 minutes talking about uh, Sandy uh, before we got to the presidential elections. I mean, we will get to that later this week on the program with those kids. But boy, they were really, really interested and frightened about Sandy. I mean, some of them said, I'd love to live in the United States. I want to go to Disneyland, but I don't want to go to Florida. That's where all the hurricanes come. All right. Thanks for uh, for the view from that side. The world's Marco Worman in London. Looking forward to your stories later in the week. Good to speak, Lisa. While Marco's in London reporting on global views of the U.S. election, he's also armed with a smartphone. Follow PRI The World on Instagram, and you can get an inside peek of what Marco is seeing through the photos that he's posting to our stream. And join the conversation, too. Remember to include the hashtag TheWorldVotes with your questions and your thoughts. Coming up tomorrow on The World, a new way to package food. Seal it in a biodegradable wrapper that you eat. Chefs, chemists, and designers all team up to wrap yogurt, ice cream, even a cocktail in a shell. We'll attend a taste test in Paris tomorrow on The World. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Brazil is starting to come to terms with abuses committed during its military dictatorship. Between 1964 and 1986, hundreds of people were killed and thousands were tortured. Among the torture victims was Brazil's current president, Dilma Rousseff. Now a truth commission is investigating the abuses, but as John Otis reports, there is little confidence that the commission will do much good. In 1969, Cecilia Coimbra provided a safe house for Marxist guerrillas who briefly kidnapped the U.S. ambassador. Shortly afterwards, Coimbra was arrested. Coimbra tells me interrogators shocked her with electric wires. The pain was so bad that she ground down several molars clenching her teeth. At one point, she says, intelligence agents removed her clothes and placed a small crocodile on top of her. More than four decades later, Coimbra says she still remembers its cold skin. Brazil is a world economic power, but the country lags far behind its neighbors when it comes to examining its dark past. In Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay, hundreds of military officers have been convicted of human rights abuses that occurred during their so-called dirty wars. 
By contrast, not a single Brazilian military officer has ever been charged for torture or assassinations. They're protected by a 1979 amnesty law. But legal and political pressure is mounting. Relatives of victims have taken to the streets to demand justice. In March, a huge protest broke out in front of the military club in Rio de Janeiro when retired officers gathered to celebrate the 1964 coup that ushered in the dictatorship. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights recently ruled that Brazil's amnesty law doesn't apply in cases of gross human rights violations. Brazil has not complied with the ruling, but President Dilma Rousseff has taken a half-step forward. Last year, she announced the formation of a truth commission. It was an emotional moment because Rousseff is a former Marxist guerrilla who was captured and tortured by the military in 1970. Rousseff said, Brazil deserves the truth. The new generations deserve the truth. Above all, those who lost friends and relatives and continue suffering as if they were dying again every day deserve the truth. The Truth Commission began work in June, but its seven members have just two years to investigate decades of human rights violations by both the military and Brazil's now-defunct guerrilla groups. What's more, there won't be any legal consequences because the amnesty remains in place. There won't even be public hearings that might have allowed torturers to come clean about their abuses. Victims like Coimbra now say the Truth Commission is just a sham designed to polish Brazil's image abroad. Vitoria Gavois heads Torture Never Again, a group that lobbies on behalf of torture victims. She says President Rousseff would have preferred a stronger Truth Commission, but Gavois believes the president bowed to pressure from Brazil's still powerful military. Our former companions in the armed resistance are now making deals with the military and the oligarchs of Brazil. Without the inter-American court ruling, there would be no truth commission in Brazil. Even so, some military officers still see the truth commission as a threat. They fear it could be the first step towards repealing the amnesty law, which is the only one of its kind still on the books in Latin America. Admiral Ricardo Vega is president of the Naval Officers Club in Rio de Janeiro. He says the military's past abuses were a natural reaction to a growing guerrilla threat. The fact that a former guerrilla has now been elected president, Vega says, proves that Brazil has overcome the trauma of those years. Among average Brazilians, there seems to be little interest in digging up the past. Many are too young to remember the dictatorship. The number of people killed or tortured was far lower here than in most other Latin American nations. And many of the perpetrators are now elderly or have died. At this outdoor market in Rio, a man selling pumpkins tells me he's never even heard of the Truth Commission. But for Coimbra, who is now 71, achieving closure does not necessarily require trials and prison sentences. Coimbra says she'd simply like her interrogators to show their faces and publicly admit that they tortured her. 
For the world, I'm John Otis, Rio de Janeiro. Just enough time for our geo-quiz now. We're looking for Canadian City actually getting a boost from Sandy. Millions of people in North America have been affected by the massive storm. There have been deaths, mega power outages, and billions of dollars in property destruction. But believe it or not, the storm brought some unexpected good fortune to a city in northern Quebec. The city is known for its protected deep water harbor on a tributary of the St. Lawrence River. It's where a cruise ship carrying nearly 3,000 passengers to Florida sought refuge from the storm. What is the name of this Canadian city? To help you out with the answer now, if you need the help, even if you don't, here's the mayor of the city, 200 miles north of Quebec City. Yes, I am Jean Tremblay, the mayor of the city of Saguenay in Quebec. The river is Saguenay and the city too. So Saguenay, Quebec is the answer to our geo-quiz, and it is where the Emerald Princess cruise ship and its 3,000 passengers disembarked on Sunday to wait out Sandy. I was there when the ship arrived, and uh, we received uh, this ship with uh, a lot of joy because, we, you know, this one was the biggest we uh, ever received in uh, Saguenay. And uh, when he arrived, everything was closed because the, the season is finished for the cruise. But we opened everything, the shop. We had uh, this advice 24 hours, so we had time to call the owner of the stores, to call the taxi, security, uh, custom, uh, because, you know, uh, those people spend money in our city. And uh, it's like a, a feast for us. We're really happy because, you know, it's spectacular. This ship arrived when it was dark uh, at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. Well, every time when the ship arrived, we are a lot at the pier with music, dance. We gave blueberry pie to the passenger. We always do that. So uh, we enjoy a lot to uh, receive passengers from the ship because a lot of people doesn't know that Saguenay exists. And it's uh, one of the nicest places in the world with the fjord and every place. So we are really happy of that. That's not bad, yes. Not bad at all. The answer is Saguenay, where you can get a great blueberry pie. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, a reporter covering a flood in China winds up sharing a precious meal with one of the affected families. They had chicken and they had braised pork and they had eggs and fish and vegetables all laid out with bowls of rice for us. They just wanted us to sit down and eat. It's all very Chinese to be like, no, you first, no, you first. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Power failures and transportation gridlock continue to plague much of the northeast United States today. 
as what's now being called post-tropical Cyclone Sandy moves inland. The swath of destruction left by Sandy comes as just the latest in a wave of extreme weather events around the world in the past couple of years. And that's led a lot of people to wonder whether it's more than just a string of bad luck. The world's environment editor Peter Thompson is here with me in the studio right now. Peter, are scientists seeing the fingerprints of climate change on Sandy? Well, Lisa, just about every climate scientist you'll talk to will say no, but many would add no, but climate change almost certainly did not cause Hurricane Sandy to form. We know that climate change is starting to affect the way storms behave, but most climate models are pretty clear in telling us that it won't affect the frequency of tropical storms. So no fingerprints, no smoking gun. But to stick with that analogy for a minute, Lisa, a good prosecutor might well make a solid case for charging climate change with aiding and abetting in the case of Sandy. Meaning circumstantial evidence. Yeah. I mean, to begin with, what many climate scientists are saying is that the entire context in which weather takes place is changing as the atmosphere warms up. James Hansen of NASA compares it to loading the dice. A warmer atmosphere, he says, is increasing the likelihood of extreme events and perhaps increasing the severity of those events when they do happen. Now, in this particular case, it's likely that warmer water in the Atlantic contributed at least in part to the strength of Sandy. I mean, temperatures in the North Atlantic this fall are several degrees Fahrenheit above normal, and that almost certainly added strength to a storm that, of course, might well have happened anyway. I mean, it's important to add that, again, no one can say for sure that this year's high temperatures in the Atlantic are a result of climate change, but the level of scientific certainty that that's what's causing oceans to warm up is pretty high. So, Peter, there was, as you well know, more to this storm than there might have been to conventional hurricanes. We heard an awful lot about those big weather systems that blocked its way north and forced it toward the coastline. Forecasters are saying this is extremely unusual. So what are we to make of that? Well, yeah, this is where the emerging climate science gets really interesting. Those weather maps we've been seeing have this big blocking high to the east and this huge dip in the jet stream to the west. And it turns out that pattern looks an awful lot like what was predicted by a really interesting paper published earlier this year in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. It showed that warming in the Arctic, like what we saw this summer, is resulting in big disruptions in weather much farther south, including often pushing waves of the jet stream way down into the temperate zones, like where this storm is happening. It also found a close correlation between a warming Arctic and an increase in the kind of blocking systems that forced Sandy toward land. And it turns out that that same kind of big blocking system has been associated with several extreme weather events over the last couple of years, including that massive 2010 drought in Russia and even the bizarre heat wave that we had here in the U.S. last March. I do need to say, of course, that these kinds of blocks aren't new, but this report shows some pretty compelling evidence that the warming Arctic is affecting the formation of these kinds of blocks and these kinds of big dips in the jet stream that are starting to play havoc with our weather all the way down here. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson. You can find a link to that study on Arctic warming at theworld.org. Peter, thanks again. Thanks, Lisa. Sandy has also brought high winds and heavy rains to Canada. Southern Ontario, Quebec, and other parts of eastern Canada were pelted by the storm today. There was at least one casualty. A woman in Toronto was struck and killed when she was hit by a sign that was ripped from a store by a wind gust. Vietnam is now picking up the pieces from Typhoon Son Tin. That storm whipped northern Vietnam yesterday. Authorities there say it tore the roofs off some 13,000 homes and damaged 43,000 acres of crops. Like Sandy, Son Tin lost some of its fury after it made landfall, but it still had enough power to dump torrential rains on southern China. 
Officials there reported widespread flood damage today, affecting several cities. One of the first assignments that journalist Audra Ang received when she started to work at the Associated Press Beijing Bureau was to cover a flood in China. That was in 2002. An early summer monsoon had brought heavy rain to Hunan province. Flooding in the countryside had destroyed crops, homes, and lives. Audra Ang writes about her experiences in her new book. It's called To the People, Food is Heaven, Stories of Food and Life in a Changing China. She recalls walking through one area with the photographer, Greg Baker. They came up to some houses right by a river. I thought that was what we would think is, you know, lakefront property. I thought it looked quite peaceful. And, you know, a group of people kind of approach us. And, you know, I say hi and I, I ask them, you know, how have the floods affected you? One of the men in the group answered me, and later on I found out his name was Farmer Two, and he said that his crops for the year have been enveloped by water. And I was like, crops? Where are the crops? I don't see anything. Because we were just looking out into all this water in front of his house, and he was like, right there. That's where the crops were. And that's when I realized the very quiet devastation of what had happened to him. He took us on a boat ride. He had this long stick and he kind of paddled us around the area and he told us this story about how his village had fought for days to try and prevent the water from overrunning their little dike around the area and so people were stacking sacks of rice on these dams but nothing really had worked and eventually all they could do was helplessly watch as the waters ran over these dikes. There is a point where he did something that uh, he calls out to his wife. I guess maybe he knew you were hungry, or maybe he was so grateful for the fact that you and your photographer were listening that he wanted to offer you a meal. This is a very Chinese thing. It's very polite. It's a, a gesture of hospitality. People will always offer you something to eat or drink. And being greedy and interested in food, and you know, I wanted to talk more to him and his family, I accepted you must have been amazed, though, that this man who was had just survived a flood was offering you a meal. I actually wasn't because, again, like I said, it's kind of a gesture that you see all the time. But I was very grateful. I was just like, that's a really nice thing for him to do. And I just kind of jumped at it without thinking. And he called out to his wife through the window and said, hey, you know, prepare a meal. And I could hear the oil sputtering and things being fried and the clang of the wok and the spatula she was using. And it, I remember walking into the kitchen and I don't remember much about, you know, the house or the surroundings, but I remember this table that was just piled on food. And at that time, I didn't realize people don't eat like this every day, especially farmers who lost everything. They had chicken and they had braised pork and they had eggs and fish and vegetables all laid out with bowls of rice for us. It, was, it wasn't just a farmer too and his wife, but some villagers, were they were all just crowded around this table. and They're looking at Greg and I kind of expectantly. What did they expect? They just wanted us to sit down and eat. And, oh. and I, I looked at it and I was like, well, there are, you know, however many of you, and there are just two of us, surely you, you, you're going to join us. And they were like, no, no, this is, you know, this is for you. And again, it's, it's all very polite. It's all very Chinese to be like, no, you first, no, you first. And so I kind of, in my clumsy Western way, kind of put my foot down. And I'm like, I'm not going to eat anything unless you join us. This is really too embarrassing. We just eat all this food. And so, of course, Farmer Two and his wife then sit down and then we start the meal. And I, I, I don't remember at what point, but at some point I realized that he had slaughtered his last chicken for us. How did you, sure. how did you f- figure that out? And why would he do that? I mean, he had kids to feed, too. It's just a gesture of Chinese hospitality. And I, I, I saw that so many times, you know, during my reporting experiences outside of cities that people in the countryside especially would give 
as much as they could, even though they didn't have very much. And that's why, you know, these experiences really stuck close to my heart. You were born in Singapore. You are of Chinese descent. You go to the country as a journalist to cover the people and the events that are going on there and also to try and kind of, as you say, understand your place in the chaos of China. How did food help you do that? Even when I left, I realized I still didn't understand my place in the chaos. I'm trying to think if food just interacted with my seven years there in so many ways. Some of it was finding points of comfort in the strangest places. Like when I was covering something sensitive to go in southern China, that's where my ancestors are from. And one day I remember I was covering some riots and one morning I woke up and, you know, I was just dreading going back to that tent situation. Police everywhere and villagers were upset. And so I just found this hole in the wall and I discovered that they sold these like fish dumplings, which I never thought I would find outside Singapore. It's something I ate as a child, something I really enjoyed. And I just had this bowl of fish dumplings and fish balls before going to this tense work situation. And again, it provided me some comfort and it tied me in with the local culture. You know, those kind of things brought me closer to my Chinese roots. Audra Ong. Her book is called To the People, Food is Heaven, Stories of Food and Life in a Changing China. Nice to have you on the program. Thank you very much for having me, Lisa. And we've got a slideshow of pictures from Audra Ong's book there at theworld.org. It's been a rocky year for China's Communist Party. There's a scandal that took down a senior party official, and there is fierce infighting about how to move forward at a time of growing political and economic challenge. As the world's Mary Kay Magstead reports, it's not the first time the party has found itself in this position. With China's Communist Party Congress set to open next week, I was browsing through my bookshelves, looking at party congresses past. I found the proceedings from one, almost 40 years ago, that suggested that Mark Twain's old adage may be true, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it can rhyme. At the 10th Party Congress in 1973, a senior party official had just met his demise. There was fierce infighting about how to move forward. Above it all was Mao Zedong, frail and pushing 80. Mao declared the Congress open and turned the podium over to Premier Zhou Enlai. <coughs> Zhou opened by praising the party for smashing Lin Biao, a top general who had been Mao's chosen successor, but who allegedly plotted a coup, fled when it failed, and died when his plane crashed in Mongolia. Joe called the Congress one of unity, victory, and vigor. He said the situation both at home and abroad was excellent, but it wasn't. The Cultural Revolution was on, the Gang of Four were on the rise, and the economy was in a shambles. Mao and Joe would be dead in three years, and it would be a couple of years after that before Deng Xiaoping would push through the economic reforms that would help China become the global power it is today. Now, China's got a collective leadership rather than one big man. It has embraced the very thing the Tenth Party Congress set out to crush, capitalism. And the economic growth rate, while slowing, is still one of the highest in the world. So, what rhymes? Well, for starters, this guy. This is Bo Xilai, a man who, like Mao, used his charisma and cunning to rise through the ranks. Like Mao, he played the populist while cracking down mercilessly on rivals. Like Mao, his wife caused problems. Boaz was convicted of killing a British businessman, 
Mao's was in the Gang of Four. Hua even tried to rekindle some of the fervor of Mao's cultural revolution by having residents of the municipality he controlled, Chongqing, sing revolutionary songs. This one is newer. It's actually called Song of Boshi Lai. But now the party has taken Bo down, expelled him, and accused him of everything from abuse of power to corruption to inappropriate sexual activities. So now he rhymes more with Lin Biao and the way the party smashed him in the 1970s. The party fought against its better nature. They kept under control until they just couldn't restrain themselves, and then the historic template came in. Just smash this, you know, smash this SOB. Carrie Brown directs the China Studies Center at the University of Sydney in Australia. He says this denunciation of Boshi Lai does rhyme with the past. The desire to completely smash the social and political face of someone when you bring them down is very strong, and I suppose that shows at the end of the day that internally. The party、um, regards attack as the best form of defence. I would have thought that was politically not necessary, but it did, and I suppose that is quite telling. Telling that as far as the party has come, old habits die hard. Telling that the party was again so shaken by one renegade in its midst, and telling that the party is again trying to control, even conceal, the story. But this time, more than half a billion Chinese are online and sharing information, including last week's New York Times expose on the wealth accumulated by Premier Wen Jiabao's family—two point seven billion dollars worth. Since the 1973 Party Congress, when a former favorite son of the party was smashed, a rising tide of prosperity has bought time for the party and allowed it to put off moving toward transparency and political reform. But with the economy slowing and the population growing restive, even some party insiders are saying that time is running out. Mao Zedong used to say there should be a revolution every few years. The challenge for the party, as it convenes next week to announce a new generation of leaders, is whether it can turn the revolution on itself and come up with a rhyme and a way forward that work for modern China. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. There is another country where old communist habits die hard: Russia. Here's a quick example: Russian President Vladimir Putin is swapping out his current wheels. He's ditching his German-made Mercedes-Benz for a Russian-made Zil. Sounds patriotic enough. It also harkens back to communist times when Soviet leaders such as Khrushchev, Brezhnev, and Gorbachev were all driven around in Zil limos. A spokesperson for the manufacturer says that Putin's new ride was designed with historical features of the old Zils, as well as the advantages of a contemporary vehicle. It also is a gas guzzler, by the way, oozing along at a mere 18 miles per gallon. Good thing Russia has plenty of oil. You can see what those old Soviet limos look like at theworld.org. This is the world on PRI Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is the world. In Libya, protesters barged into the National Congress today. They were reportedly upset with the prime minister's proposed cabinet. A year after the fall of Muammar Gaddafi, many Libyans complain the current government is not doing enough to solve their problems. One issue is housing. 
Reporter Maureen Olivesi visited some of the families in Tripoli who have literally moved into the ruins of the Gaddafi regime. She caught up with them as they celebrated the Feast of Sacrifice on the last day of the Muslim holiday Eid al-Adha. Seven-year-old Mohammed ties a yellow leash around the neck of a sheep and takes the reluctant animal for a walk. Mohammed and his father, Hassan, have just returned from Eid's morning prayer. Home for them is right in front of a flattened building. Part of the roof hangs down on twisted cables as if it were refusing to collapse more than a year after Tripoli's fiercest battle unfolded here. He's one of the revolutionaries who conquered Babalaziziyah. The onslaught of Babalaziziyah was a turning point for Hassan and for Libya's former regime. Under Gaddafi's rule, Babalaziziyah was a military fortress. Most Libyans were afraid to even look up at its outer walls, Hassan says, but fear competed with curiosity. He always wanted to see what's inside. And he says once he, he got a flat tire in front of the gate and they came rushing to him with their guns. Move, move, you have to move right now. And I thought to myself, one day I'm just going to go in, inside there. And here I am living, actually not just going in there, living in here. About 120 families have settled in the abundant complex over the past year. Hassan lives on government assistance, about $300 a month for his family of six. He used to spend most of that on rent. Now he's squatting here for free in the midst of rubble. Hassan's closest neighbor, Salma, says no one in Libya should have to live like this. The country has always been so rich, she says, so why are we so poor? Salma invites me inside what looks like a former storage unit. The walls and roof are still standing firm, but that's all there is. She uses a portable gas stove as a kitchen and a paint bucket as a toilet. She says she couldn't afford a sheep for Eid. Hassan got his for $440. He sold his car and brought a cheaper one just so he could carry out the ritual slaughter. Hassan makes a quick deep cut in the sheep's throat. Then he skins the animal as his wife kindles a flame on their grill. After they finish the skinning, they will take the insides out, the internals out. Then comes the chopping and the slicing of the meat. Chewing on a piece of raw liver, Hassan says Libya's prime minister paid them a visit a month ago and promised to resettle the families in proper homes. But he says the prime minister obviously has more pressing issues on his hands. Meanwhile, other Libyans are making use of this former military compound. They're dumping their trash here. Mountains of broken furniture, old tires and ragged clothes clutter the surroundings on top of debris. Hassan says it's annoying, but he doesn't take it personally. Although it's just because it's a Gaddafi place, it feels good to dump trash at the place where we were not even allowed to just stand in front of it. But now it's a dumpster for us. A dumpster for many and a home for some. Hassan's wife sweeps out the courtyard and washes the blood away. For the world, I'm Marine Olivesi in Babalaziziya, Tripoli.
You can get a taste of what it's like living in the ruins of Gaddafi's compound. We've got a slideshow. Check it out at theworld.org. We've got one more piece to share with you before we go today. It comes courtesy of one of our regular DJs. Greetings from Oslo, Norway. I'm Marius Asp from NRK, back with another DJ pick from the creme de la creme of European music. For this edition, I've turned to one of the most refreshing pop albums coming out of Scandinavia this year. The debut album by the Swedish electropop trio Nikki and the Dove, titled Instinct. Let's listen to one of its catchiest moments. Here's In Our Eyes. When I was young, sometimes when I look back, I see that it can That was a snippet from In Our Eyes by Nikki and the Dove, but you'd be forgiven to mistake it for an outtake from, say, Fleetwood Mac's Tango in the Night from 1987. And the greatest music of the 80s really is the foundation for Nikki and the Dove's sound, first and foremost Kate Bush and Prince, who both loom over the trio's glossy, sparkling and expensively ornamented songs. In the centre of it all, though, is a somehow Swedish quality, the ability to write memorable hooks and choruses that are both smart and irresistible. A great example is Somebody, this album's true Prince moment. Oh, it's in the air everywhere I go. The birds and the trees trying to tell it to you. It's even on the act and not just singing. Oh, if you want to come, want to go with me. Baby, all the things that we can do. Nothing but all the things that we can do. Oh, you're coming out to been hearing cuts from Instinct, the debut album by Swedish trio Nick and the Dove. Now, for the most part, this playful and original pop album evokes memories of the era where Running Up That Hill or When Doves Cry had a chance of dominating commercial radio. Yeah, that's a long time ago. But there's also a darker and more experimental edge to some of these songs. Moments when the gothic impulses from contemporary electropop artists such as The Knife and Bat for Lashes enter the surface. These dark spots make the bright ones shine even brighter. Here's one of them, the gentle roar. We heard from Norwegian DJ Marius Asp of NRK in Oslo. The album is Instinct by Nikki and the Dove. The group is playing tonight at the Hollywood Palladium in Los Angeles. And if you can't make it there, then you can stream their tune called Tomorrow at theworld.org today. That's it for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.